Let us hear the word of our God. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The grass withers, the fire fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, uh, we need to envision a courtroom. As Paul comes to this terminology of righteousness, we must immediately think of law. We must think of courts, of judges, and lawyers, and so on and so forth. And so some of us surely have been in a courtroom before. Uh, You've probably seen Law and Order or A Few Good Men or something like that on television where we see uh, a courtroom. And so typically, of course, in the front we have the judge, and then you may have a jury on uh, either side. And typically, at least on television, the prosecution as you're facing forward is off to the right, and the defense is off to the left, and so on. So with this in mind, we come here now to these words of Paul, where he says, In it the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel, as it were, takes us into the courtroom. How so? Well, this is what Paul is addressing uh, here. Now, we started these theme verses in Romans, verses 16 and 17, with the topic of shame. And so we are no longer ashamed because of God's grace to us in Christ. And this then gives us boldness not to be ashamed when we have opportunity to speak to others regarding Christ. And then last time, we talked about how Uh, The power of God has made all of this happen. The gospel instructs us regarding God's power to change our dead hearts. And the the, the gospel itself has power because the Spirit uses our words when we witness to others to effect change in someone's heart. This power then leads to salvation, our salvation. Ultimately, this means from God's wrath, from the judgment that we deserve for our sin. We also then are saved from the eternal death and hell fires. We are saved from sin, our old man. We are saved from Satan and so on. But ultimately, the point is we are saved from God. He is no longer angry with us because we have sinned against him. Now, this salvation has, if you will, different stages. Ultimately, it points to the final judgment. We are saved from that. But when we trust in Jesus now, that salvation is ours even today. We have hope. We have something that is sure and certain and guaranteed. And so God treats us as his children now, even though the final judgment and that final verdict has yet to be pronounced. And so everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. We have this salvation from God's wrath and it's through the power of God through the gospel. So this leads us then to some questions. How does this work? How does uh, a, a sinner like you and me, how do we end up in heaven? Well, on the one hand, Paul's answered this question already. The Spirit is working in us, right? He is changing our hearts so that we now can repent and believe. But that's not all. Okay? There is more to say. And so let's put it in some questions here. When God saves us, is he overlooking our sin? 
Is he just letting us into heaven because God in the end is just a softy? You know, like that grandparent that always gives in or something. Um, does he let us into heaven because he really does not care about law and order? He really doesn't care about sin? Is he like a modern uh, person in power who just wants more power and cheap labor and to fundamentally transform his kingdom or something? Uh, well, no. God is holy. God is righteous. He must punish sin. He cannot overlook it. It would be against his character. And so, therefore, we can only cross his border, as it were, into his kingdom if we come to the gate, which is Christ, only if we are wearing those wedding garments and only if we have an eternal visa card, so to speak. But again, how does this work? How does God make this happen? How are we made right with God when we are not right with him in and of ourselves? Well, Paul then gives us an answer to this question. And in verse 17, again, it says, For in it, referring to the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. All right, now... <clears throat> One of the great benefits of what Paul does here in Romans is he gives us a summary of what he's going to say in these two verses. And you know, sometimes uh, a summary message is as helpful or even more helpful than looking at all the particulars. So starting in the next verse, running really through the end of the book, he's going to give us all kinds of particulars, and especially when we get to chapter 3 in regard to righteousness. But here now he gives it in this summary manner, and so we can then summarize it uh, here today. Now notice how the verse begins with four. This is the third one. In verse 16, it began with four, and then it, uh, partway through, for it is the power of God. Now here, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And then the last one in this sequence is in verse 18. So the point here Paul is making is, Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome because he's not ashamed to proclaim God's way of salvation. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power that results in salvation for all who believe. And so now that salvation is accomplished because God makes known his righteousness by faith. Okay. Now, let me pause and just say this. <clears throat> Once again, as I've said several times already, there are many different views historically on how to understand these words of Paul. I am not going to go through all the different views. There, there are many dozens, actually. Uh, but I'm going to focus on the main point, and let me say it in this way. Once Luther, Martin Luther, understood what this verse meant, he actually understood salvation. Prior to that point, Prior to his study of the Psalms, prior to his study of Romans, prior to his study of Galatians, he thought the righteousness of God always meant he's going to just judge me because of how awful I am. That was his only understanding of righteousness. And it is part of our understanding of righteousness, but that's all he knew. And once he came to understand that there is something more to that in regard to God's righteousness, then he understood salvation. So let's try to do some of that here this morning. Let me start here with just a few numbers, okay. <clears throat> a few statistics. And as I've said before, numbers don't tell us everything, but they certainly can give us a direction. This word 
And word group, this word for righteous and righteousness and so forth, is an incredibly important word for Paul. Let me show you just briefly here. The word righteousness is used 34 times just in Romans. The adjective righteous or just is used seven times by Paul. And then the verb to justify, that's used 15 times by Paul here in this letter. Now, there are six other words that are related that he uses. One we translate as justification. Another one is act of justice. And then the third one is just judgment. He uses another adjective that we translate as righteous or just. And then he has two that are negated. So you have unrighteous and unjust, or as we see in verse 18, we have unrighteousness. Okay. Now, those six different words total 17 times here in the letter. So all together then, in the New Testament, these words are used 262 times. Paul uses them 126, so 48% roughly. And that makes sense. He writes 13 letters, right? But of those 126 times, 73 times he uses these words in Romans alone. That's about 58%. It's really a simple point. If we want to understand the gospel, we have to understand this topic of righteousness. And if we don't understand that point, we have yet to understand the gospel. It's really that simple. And so Paul uses this word and this idea over and over again. So then, what does he mean by it? How is the righteousness of God revealed to us in the gospel? Or, if I can put it this way, every time we tell someone about Jesus, we must be talking about the righteousness of God. Otherwise, we're not really giving the gospel, or maybe just a part of it. So what does it mean? Well, I think it's best understood in three ways, and I'm certainly not alone here. With all the different views out there, many people try to boil it down to one or maybe two, but I think three is the best way for us to look at it. So first of all, what is revealed in the gospel? Well, the character of our God, who is righteous, is revealed in the gospel. And when we use this term righteousness, I started here at the beginning with the idea of the courtroom. Whenever we hear this term, we have to think about law. We have to think about law and order, because that's what the term has to do with. So in everyday ways, we have this. If you go to work, there are certain laws at your workplace that you have to follow. Some of those laws are put there by the government. Some are put there by the business where you work. Some of them are written. Some of them are unwritten. But there are all kinds of laws there that you need to keep. And if you keep them, you'll be considered righteous. The same is, is true in school. Okay, you got to sit in your seat, you got to raise your hand, you know, you can't just run off to the bathroom, you got to get a pass. I mean, there's all these rules at school. And if you follow those laws, you're considered to be righteous. You can say the same thing in any other part of society, in our homes, hey, at the grocery store, hey, standing in line, you know, there's all these rules, some written, some unwritten. And so in regard to God then, God is righteous in regard to his own law. He has established law. That law is based on his character, on his attributes. And so God is righteous in relation to that. He does not violate himself. 
He does not break his own law. And in a sense, we can say he can't. He can't go against his character because he is God. And so he can't just say, oh, don't worry about your sin. It's okay. He can't do that. God has established a moral universe of right and wrong, of good and evil. And so he must punish sin. And since he must punish sin, hey, the righteousness of God then is revealed in the gospel. So, how does God forgive sinners and remain righteous? God does not cease his duty as judge simply because Jesus came. In fact, the gospel highlights this point, that God is righteous and judge. So, again, picture this scene here. God is there sitting up uh, on the, the bench there in the judge's seat and so forth. And here comes a sinner into his presence. Okay. Now let me pause and just say this. Some people try to say that Paul is using all kinds of Greek ideas in his understanding here. And okay, there's some overlap, right? You think of the, the cardinal virtues in the Greek world. You think of justice or righteousness. Okay. But Paul primarily has the Old Testament in mind. God is judge and the law of God. And so as we come before God... And you can picture some of these scenes there when Moses comes before God and God's ready to judge Israel for their sin. Or you think of the, the vision in Zechariah with Josiah and Satan and so forth. You've got these different places. Okay. The sinner comes before him. And the prosecution then has all this evidence. Okay. And so Satan brings his evidence to accuse us of sin. The law has all this evidence to say, look, Scott has committed all of these sins. And there are many. And so witnesses then are called. And they too can say, yep, Scott's just a, you know, he's a terrible sinner. And all of the evidence, without exception, points to this fact. And so God has every right then to slam down his gavel and say, guilty is charged. Okay. And God would be just to do that very thing. Okay. But <clears throat> we have this different scenario here. This, this, can you say, unique situation in the courtroom. Okay. It would be just for God to say, you're headed to hell. But he does not do so for those who trust in Christ, right? For the Jew first and for the Gentile. How? This seems unfair, doesn't it? It seems unjust. How can a judge look at someone who is clearly guilty and say, oh, don't worry about it? Well, we don't worry about it because Jesus came and he stepped in and he then becomes our substitute. He says two primary things. First of all, I will be righteous in the place of the sinner. Jesus says that we can have his righteousness, and he never sinned. He's always been righteous. It was true when he was on earth. It's true even now. He has always been righteous. But he also steps in and says, I will take that guilty verdict in the place of the sinner. And, of course, Jesus was forsaken on the cross 
by his father and he took the wrath of God as a sacrifice on the cross. All right, but how is that fair? How is that just? If someone is convicted of a crime and let go, we would say, whoa, wait a second, that's not right. You have all these woke DAs in our major cities that are doing this very thing right now. There are all these people committing crimes. I was just reading, was it yesterday or the day before, this one man committed 30% of the crimes in a particular area because he keeps getting released. And we say, that's not fair, that's not right. Or we had the Durham probe, finally, the report that came out this week. And for those of us paying attention, there was no surprise, of course. But, I mean, this is far worse than Watergate. But what I find most concerning is he didn't bring any charges. There have been no charges brought against Biden or Clinton or Obama or John Brennan or the FBI or any of the rest. It's not fair, is it? And that's the right response. But isn't that what's happening here? God is saying to the sinner, hey, not guilty. And we're like, well, that's not fair. They deserve to be judged. We are set free even though we are guilty. And it's because Jesus is our substitute. All right. Um, The... The first idea here, then, in this way, is that God is being just by punishing the sin of the sinner by punishing Jesus instead. God is being just by allowing us into heaven because Christ has met all the standards and requirements for us. He's not overlooking our sin. He is not just giving us a free pass into heaven. All the requirements uh, have been met by Christ. Now, let's turn just a moment to chapter 3, because as I've said, this is just a summary here, and Paul's going to elaborate, and if you look especially, I'm just going to read through it today, because there's so much in these verses, but in Romans 3, beginning in verse 23, he basically expands on what he says here in chapter 1, verse 17, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, okay, the verdict is clear, right? We're all guilty. And then he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, or we could say righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is a much more detailed explanation that we see in chapter 1, verse 17, but it's what I'm trying to summarize for us here this morning. All right. We say, okay, well, 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 God's being righteous. He's punishing sin by punishing Jesus instead of us, And, and yet he's not just letting us into heaven. The requirement is the same. Jesus just meets the requirement for us. Okay, All right, fine. But that still doesn't seem very fair, does it? 
If you tried to do that in a courtroom today, hey, just laugh. Let me give you an example. Okay? If, for example, Ted Bundy, convicted of all kinds of murders, right? apparently he admitted to 30 and some have speculated even 100 women he killed and so forth. All right. Well, imagine if one of his groupies were to come in and insist on going to prison instead of Ted Bundy. Okay? And, of course, some of those things did happen, right? Uh, or let's say one of them came and said to the judge, hey, I'll go to the electric chair instead of Ted Bundy. The judge would look at this lady and say, forget it, right? That, that, that is not right. That is not just and so if someone is convicted and someone else is sent to jail, we would cry foul. And yet, can I put it this way? Jesus is our groupie. Isn't that exactly what has happened? We deserve the electric chair. We deserve prison for the rest of our lives, you know, whatever. We deserve hell. And yet Jesus has said, I'll do it in your place. And we're like... That's not fair. That's not right. We don't do that in the courtroom. So how is this then just? How is it just that Jesus could stand in our place? Well, let's turn to chapter 5 a moment. <clears throat> Paul's going to elaborate on this question here in this section. In Romans 5, <clears throat> verses 12 to 21. Now, there's a lot here. There are a lot of questions. All I want us to do here today is to look at verses 18 and 19, which I think best summarizes what he's trying to say. So Romans 5, verse 18, he says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Okay, note all this. Legal language, right? Righteousness here, justification. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. This is the answer for why it is just for Jesus to do all this stuff in our place. And the answer is very simply, in God's court, he did something very unique. Something that does not apply to the ten buddies of the world or anyone else. God set up a legal system with two representatives. And the one man, Adam, disobeyed. And the other man, Christ, obeyed. And so Adam represents all of humanity. Every human being who has ever lived and ever will live, except for the other representative, of course, Jesus. And so we see this, for example, in Genesis 2 and 3. And Paul's referring to that. Okay? Through one man's obedience, or excuse me, disobedience, one man's offense, judgment came to all men. And so Adam represented everyone. And Jesus then represents all who believe. And we see this first described for us in Genesis 3, verse 15. This is unique. No one else can do it this way. This is just for Adam and for Jesus. And so Adam sinned, 
and everyone else then sinned in Adam, is declared to be guilty. So Des is back here. She's pregnant, expecting this little baby. That baby's already guilty because that baby is represented by Adam. Okay, Melody and Kurt just had a little baby a few weeks ago or whatever it's been, right? That child is already guilty because the child is represented by Adam. Okay. And so all are guilty because they are represented by Adam, united to Adam. Adam is our federal head. We are part of the covenant of Adam, the covenant of works, covenant of life. There are different ways people use uh, terminology in this way. And so even before we do anything sinful, we deserve hell and damnation because Adam represented us. And you're probably thinking, well, that doesn't seem very fair. But this is the way God set it up. And if God set it up this way with Adam, he also set it up the same way with Christ. Jesus, though, obeyed where Adam did not. Adam represents everyone. But unlike Adam, Jesus obeys perfectly. And so even the worst of sinners are declared to be righteous in God's sight because they are united to Christ in the covenant of grace. What Christ did then applies to all who believe, all who are God's people. And so even though we are unrighteous and deserve hell and damnation, because Jesus represents the people of God, we can go to heaven instead. We can be spared the judgment that we deserve. Now, if we're going to be consistent, on the one hand, this seems unfair too, doesn't it? Okay, think of Paul. He was a murderer. Think of David. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And we could go down the list of many other sins. And yet, because of God's grace, because of their faith in Christ, Christ who would come for David, of course, um, we get to go to heaven. This arrangement does not apply in human courts. It's only in this specific way in God's court. And so this is why it's just. This is why it is righteous. God is just to punish everyone because Adam failed. God is just to reward those who trust in Christ because Jesus obeyed and he took the judgment for us. And so in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is what is being revealed. Now, Paul is going to expand on this, of course. We have this summary statement in verse 17, but beginning in verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, he's basically going to explain how all of us are ten bunnies. All of us are wretched, awful people because we have all sinned. Now, maybe we haven't murdered many people, but we still are awful, wretched people. We deserve God's wrath, not just because of what Adam did, but because of our own sin. And then in chapter 3, as I read part of it here in verses 21 and following, God explains God's righteousness unto salvation for those who believe in Jesus. And this is for the Jew and for the Gentile. And it gets into that even in chapter 4. 
And then here in chapter 5, he says about this unique law court, this covenant system, this idea of representation. And so when the gospel is proclaimed, we are saying God is righteous, and this is how he is righteous. Jesus did it for us, and that is just because of this covenant union with uh, Adam or Christ scenario. But you know, we're not quite done yet. There is another aspect to the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel. I've already hinted at it, but let me expand on it here a little bit. The term justification, obviously it's one of these righteous words, right? To be just, to be righteous. So justification, to justify. What does it mean? Well, it cannot mean that God is making us righteous. That's what the Catholic view is. That's what sloppy Protestants say when you ask them what justification means. <laughs> but we are not being made righteous in our justification. It is not a process. Think of it like this. This is the return of the courtroom. Does the judge actually make anyone guilty or innocent? Now, if they're an activist judge, maybe. But if they're a judge doing the right thing, do they actually make anyone guilty or innocent? Okay, of course not. Ted Bundy was already guilty. The judges said, hey, look, I see all this evidence. There's all this, these witnesses, all this DNA, all this sort of thing, right? Hey, he's guilty. Slam down the gavel, right? And so he is declaring us to be guilty or innocent. That's what the judge does. And so when God comes to us and through Christ, and, and we are now considered righteous, it's because he has declared us to be righteous. He's not making us righteous. Okay? And so God declares us to be righteous due to the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, as it were, is transferred to us. We are now considered to be righteous in God's sight. We're not actually righteous yet in our justification. Similarly, God declares Jesus to be sinful, to be guilty, not because he actually is, but because our sin has symbolically then been transferred to Christ. Okay. So basically, when we're talking about righteousness, we need to think of the sacrificial system. Beginning in Genesis 3, we see the first death of someone or something in the place of a sinner. And that, of course, was the animal and the skins given to Adam and Eve. We see then with Abel, we see it with Noah, Abraham, and, of course, the Mosaic system. The sacrificial system is telling to us very clearly what righteousness is all about. And so we may use big terms like imputation or substitution or justification or active and passive obedience and so on, but the idea is pretty straightforward. When the sinner would come to the priest, to the temple or the tabernacle, okay, he would bring this animal that had no problems. Okay, didn't have any bad eyes or you know, a broken foot or anything. It was without blemish. And that person would bring the animal and place the hand on the head of the animal. And in that act, symbolically, there's this transfer of the sin of the sinner onto the animal, and the animal is killed in the place of the sinner. The animal is declared to be sinful, 
even though the animal is without blemish. And that animal dies in the place of, as a substitute. Okay? But then conversely, the innocence of the animal is symbolically transferred to the sinner. And now the sinner is considered to be righteous in the sight of God and can be treated as a child of God with God no longer being angry with that Israelite. And the same thing now happens with Christ. God sees us as perfect. Let that sink in. God sees us as without any blemish or blame, as completely righteous, as not guilty because of what Jesus, our lamb, has done for us. Furthermore, of course, our judgment has been meted out on Christ. And so even on your worst day, God still says, you are right before me. Your debt is paid because of what Jesus has done for us. But we can't stop here. God is not satisfied with wretched children clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He wants us to actually be righteous and holy. And so he works in us through the power of his spirit. When we read his word, when we pray to him, he's working in us through baptism, the Lord's Supper, as we fellowship and talk with other believers as he brings sufferings and hardships our way. We call this sanctification. God then is making us righteous and holy. But in our justification, when we are proclaiming the gospel, it is a declaration of God through Christ. And so all of these things then that I've just spent a few moments talking about, is God's righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. So when you witness to someone about Christ, don't just say the things I said last week. Last week I said that we are saved if we trust in Jesus. That's true, but isn't that where so many people stop? If you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. Okay, how does that work? Well, it is through the righteousness of God, through the things that I've talked about here this morning. Verse 17 explains how verse 16 is true. This is why the gospel is good news. And so when you are witnessing to someone else, whether it's your, your child or a friend or a co-worker, whoever it is, make sure you talk about righteousness. Because for Paul... You're not saying the gospel unless you do. It has to include these ideas. And so, let me read for us a couple passages. Let me read again from Psalm 98. We sang from it. I did the call to worship. Let me read again these words. Many commentators think Paul has this in mind as he writes these words. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness. He has revealed in the sight of the nations. 
You know, Paul's words are very, very similar there. I could read many. Let me read uh, two more. Isaiah 51, uh, beginning in verse 4. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the people's My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. You people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, right? Don't be ashamed. For the mouth, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. And then one more. This is Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things which are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And Paul is saying... Here it is. Okay, it's been accomplished in Christ. Let me then end with these words from John Stott. He says this, The righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust, his righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous, in which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. He has done it through Christ, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. He does it, uh, uh, yeah, he does it by faith when we put our trust in him and cry to him. For mercy. And that's the rest of verse 17, isn't it? And so, Lord willing, next time we will look then at faith and the responsibility of faith here so that we can know this righteousness. And so, a few words here today about this all important idea. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word, and uh, um, we are thankful for making yourself known to us, not merely in the things that you have made, not merely in the daily events of life, but especially through your Son. And through him, we thank you, Lord, that we now know what righteousness is. That it isn't merely that you are angry with us because we are sinners, but your righteousness also is seen then And what you have done through Christ, how he has been righteous for us, and that he has taken the judgment that we deserve. 
and that you have arranged this through the covenants, the covenant of grace. We are thankful, Lord, that we can be here today. And for those of us who trust in Christ, we can be confident, secure, hopeful that we are righteous in your sight because of Christ. Lord, we truly marvel at these things, and this truly is good news. May we then not be ashamed and tell others about it. But Lord, we also then pray that you would make us what you have declared us to be. You have declared us to be righteous, so please then make us righteous and holy in your sight through the work of your spirit and the means of grace. We pray that uh, you would do this for your honor and glory. And so, Lord, again, we praise you, we thank you, and we are filled with joy and true amazement that you have done these things for us, your people. We pray all this, then, in Jesus' name.